Church of Christ is the hottest church in town for once. And, uh, didn't quite make it. So, uh, did you guys see the new parking lot? Looks pretty good. If you want to give a special donation to help that, that would be great. But if you don't park in the parking lot, don't bother. <laughs> well, we'll do our best to stay cool. Air conditioning is a wonderful invention. Uh, if you are out in the car in the parking lot, I hope you have a working AC. You will need it today. Uh, the last couple weeks I've handed out envelopes as part of the sermon. The car people I found out didn't get those. I'm sorry, car people. Uh, I appreciate your patience. I just want to keep encouraging you. Uh, I know it's not always easy because we don't see the overheads and we don't see the, the same things that other people see, but uh, car church is a whole lot better than no church. So thank you for sticking with us. Well, it's been a few weeks that we've been wandering other places, but we're going to jump back with our friend Peter this morning. He's got a lot to teach us. And uh, so we kind of left off with, I don't know where the overhead is. There it is. And I don't know my clicker. Resources. 
uh, to check out. The first one is called Triple X Church, specifically dealing with issues of pornography and porn addiction. Um, just to keep in mind, uh, tuck that away if you need to. Come talk to me if you need to. Uh, there are godly women in this church. If you're a woman, you can go to and talk about different things. Um, this stuff is important. And you're not going to be able to just walk away from it without having a plan, without having accountability, without having intentionality, without repentance and the hard work of that. Um, the second resource is Celebrate Recovery, which is a 12-step recovery program. It can deal with like sexual addiction and things like that. But it's for all of life's hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And so it could be eating, it could be unforgiveness, it could be uh, drama that you're dealing with, with your parents of origin. And it's a 12-step Christ-centered recovery program. Really, a lot of the stuff comes right out of the Sermon on the Mount. And I've been a participant with things with Celebrate Recovery and highly recommend them. And if you want to know programs in the area, you can just look at Google Celebrate Recovery in Eugene. I know that Dayspring has a really vibrant Celebrate Recovery community, and there are other groups meeting. I know there's one in Springfield as well. And as we begin to live lives of greater purity, greater holiness, when we actually practice repentance, when we become a people who are humble, and we actually become more loving, our lives begin to change to the point where people in this culture around us begin to notice there's something different about us. And it makes people uncomfortable. And people react. So 1 Peter 4, 4 said, they think it's strange that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. You know, when you are playing a different game by a different set of rules, people will call you out for that. You just have to know that that's part of uh, uh, an opportunity for you to be salt and light and witness Christ in our culture. And I love Peter's language, you know, this, we've been looking at his word art. It's so uh, beautiful, um, the, the art that he creates with his words, a flood of dissipation. Do you ever think about a good description of what sin is? A flood of dissipation. Uh, a flood is something that is full of sound and fury, but when a flood dissipates, it ends up coming to nothing leaving nothing but emptiness and destruction in its wake as it dissipates. It's the way sin works a lot of times. And now as we continue on with Peter, uh, chapter 4, verse 7 and following, if you have a Bible and want to follow along. Peter, he begins by uh, inviting us now into a consideration of the end times. And in Peter's second letter, which is called 2 Peter, he elaborates a whole lot more on this because there are a lot of people, you know, these critics that he's dealing with, 
uh, they're saying, you know what, things are just going to go on forever the way they are. There is no second coming. Those criticisms were coming even back all the way uh, in Peter's time. Uh, and I think that Peter and Paul, in their writing, that it kind of lends itself towards, uh, they probably thought that the second coming of Christ would come sooner rather than later. Um, and, I, and that's speculation on my part. There's just a few verses that kind of hint toward that. And yet, universally, the Bible says the day of the hour of Christ's return is unknown. It's unknown. Even Jesus, God incarnate, when he was on the earth, he said uh, that he didn't know, at least not at that time and in that place. And it was hidden knowledge that was only possessed by God the Father. But the logic of the New Testament writers, including Peter, is this. Since Christ could return at any time, and no, and no one knows when Christ is going to come back, the disciple of Jesus should be in a constant state of preparation. Are you ready for Jesus' return? If you knew that you were going to die on such and such date, would that knowledge change the way you live now currently, in your current circumstances? You might think, you know, I've got lots of time. You might think, oh, where did all that time go? The end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. You know, I just got to say, for many of you, one of the great disappointments that you have with me as your preacher is that I'm not a sports guy. Uh, you have heard of rumors of good preachers who constantly and effectively use really good sports analogies for their sermons. And you're stuck with me, on the other hand. I can go years without talking about sports. Well, for you who've been waiting for years, guess what? It's not just a hot Sunday. It's a sports analogy Sunday. You've been waiting a long time. So there's a game called football in our country. And it's a little different than what the rest of the world refers to as football. That's okay. We're American. We do things our own way. So I found a picture of a famous football player. Uh, this is a guy in a position where he throws that ball sometimes. Or he passes it to other people. I think he's called a tackle or something like that. No, I'm just kidding. I know it's a quarterback, a, a famous quarterback named Steve Wilson. A Russell Wilson. <laughs> see, see how much I know? I'm just kidding. I'm baking him along. Well, they have this thing in American football called a two-minute warning at the end of each half of play. Have you heard about a two-minute warning? That's maybe a little bit next level. You really have to watch football to know about a two-minute warning. Okay, two-minute 
recording at the end of each half of play, a whistle sounds, and it often seems like both teams, when the two-minute warning comes up, they put out a little bit extra effort. They're trying extra hard in that two-minute warning. So the offense tries desperately to score points the last couple minutes of the half, the last minutes of the game. And the defense is especially careful after the two-minute warning. They were playing hard before, but with the two-minute warnings there, they don't want to give up any ground. And I think anyone who watches football has seen the team make a noticeable, a noticeable surge at the two-minute warning. It's just like they, they're, they're digging deep then, a whole other level of energy that they're kicking in. And some of us have wondered, uh, why don't they just play like that all the time? Like it's two-minute morning time. Then they would really dominate the other team. If they just keep that level of intensity, well, it's hard to keep that level of intensity. So when Peter says, the end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray, what Peter, in essence, is saying, what this argument is, is, hey, Christian, you need to be living like it's your two-minute warning. We are in a constant state of preparation. The two-minute warning has been given. Christ's return is imminent. It could be any time. And yet, we don't typically live that way. How do you live if you know you only have a short time left on earth? As Christians, we are constantly, and we are to be in a constant state of preparation because we know that things can change in any moment. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. How do you live like that? How much time do you have? Christ could return at any moment. What about just your own personal life? Do you have years? We hope we do. Maybe it's weeks, maybe it's days, the hours. We just, we don't know. But because we don't know, um, we need to live as prepared people. And I also want you to notice that Peter ties certain things to prayer. Clear-mindedness and self-control. They are directly correlated to the effectiveness of your prayers. How effective is your prayer life? Prayer is the primary means that we've been given as Christians, not just to communicate with God, but to participate in the work of God. We work with God together in prayer. We work with God so that God can do what only God is able to do. His mission, His protection, His blessing coming into people's lives. That's something we're invited to participate in in our prayer life. God does things in response to our prayers that He would not otherwise do. And you're thinking, wait, hold on a second, Calvin. Are you sure? And you got to think about that. you got to dig into some passages with Moses and the Testament, stuff like that, but God does things in response to our prayers that He would not otherwise do. 
Isn't God good? Isn't he going to work good anyway? Isn't he just going to automatically take care of this? A lot of us have a prayer life that's more like obligation. Or maybe it's a little bit of magic where we're just putting coins in the slot machine, hoping that some good comes out of it. But we don't realize what a gift we've been given in our prayer uh, to pray together with the Lord. A clear-minded Christian, you know how practical prayer is. A clear-minded Christian prays for real-life change in circumstances. A clear-minded Christian has thought about things, and you know what the real issues are. There is a spiritual war happening around us. You pray with an awareness of that. A clear-minded Christian knows how to direct the words of their prayer to the greatest good. And it needs to be tied to real-life circumstances and situations. It needs to be that way. It is not necessarily flowery or beautiful words, but they're very practical words. So... You know, as a guy who does this, and Ron, Ron talked about this a little bit, how we can just get into motions, and, you know, I, I like to say beautiful words when I pray, and it becomes like this old language, and when those beautiful words are disconnected from the reality of my life, there's a real problem there. And we can have these nice flowery platitudes, but a clear-minded Christian does not pray that way. It's tied to the real circumstances that affect us in our daily lives and are tearing this church apart, attacking this church, are blessing this church. It gets real practical. So I can go on with really flowery language, but you know what? There are real needs taking place in this church. And so, and, uh, for example, I've been praying a lot for our sister Brittany, who's in the hospital now, and those prayers aren't just... If God chooses, I am praying specifically that those twins do not come out prematurely, uh, that they have more time to develop. I'm asking the Lord to give her more time for those twins to develop. Very specific. Very tied to a real circumstance. I'm praying for their health. A healthy baby boy and a healthy baby girl. I'm praying that there will not be overwhelming health complications that is practical intercessory prayer. And you just pour your heart out in that to the Lord to work good on behalf of situations that we're aware of and that we know. A clear-minded Christian knows how to pray practical prayers. A self-controlled Christian, a self-controlled person. If you're self-controlled, you know what it's like to fight against temptation. And we're surrounded by culture that says, do whatever feels good, do whatever you want. But if you've drawn these kind of lines in your life, and you've said, I'm not going to go past this line, you know what it is like to be tempted. And your self-control, you learn how to fight. A self-controlled person has standards. They have boundaries. And you don't get to keep that and be 
self-control, if you haven't learned how to wrestle in prayer and how to uh, have intentionality and purpose in your planning. Self-controlled person. You don't end up being a self-controlled person just because you decide that one day. You are a person who has learned that you have to have a plan. You have recognized the areas where the enemy is beating you up and eating your lunch. And you learn, when I let it go this far, and I don't respond until this point, the enemy is already getting his way. I, and, and we are wise about this. We learn how to fight those temptations upstream before they become a bigger issue. And we invite each other in to have encouragement and support and help. And our prayers are practical about dealing with the real issues of our life. So that is what Peter is doing when he is tying prayer to self-control and to clear-minded thinking. They're like the sides of a coin. You will not become a morally self-controlled person without learning to wrestle in prayer. And your prayers are going to lack effectiveness unless you're living a self-controlled life. There's a mutual beneficial, uh, uh, mutual, mutually beneficial uh, result there. And it grows like compound interest. It's not just sin that grows on compound interest. Righteousness grows on compound interest. We become clear-minded and self-controlled. It helps with the effectiveness of our prayers. Then Peter goes on to say this. Above all, love each other deeply. Because love covers a multitude of sins. What this means is that when love is truly present, when love is really here with us, we aren't sweating the small things. We're not sweating the small things. And when love is absent from this church, from a marriage, from a friendship, when love is not there, every flaw, every mistake, every careless word, every sign of weakness, it's magnified in our minds. It's magnified. And we fixate on those. Jesus talked about this. You see a speck in your brother's eye, and you got a two-by-four hanging out of your own. Where there is no brotherly love, our memories grow very long. Do you remember what brother so-and-so said 13 years ago? And what happened with this? stuck in those places. Our memories grow very long when there is not brotherly love. Love covers over a multitude of sins. And Peter's not talking about works of righteousness, like it's a scale, like love has to, I need more in the love bank to, to bring up the balance for the for all the sin stuff. talking about the power of love and the way that love works. You can think of our lives into the cracks. Love is what comes and fills those cracks. Uh, the walls of sin that separates Christians from each other and separates people from each other. Love is the power that breaks those walls down. Love is like a bulldozer in that sense. Knocking walls of separation down. You see, what would normally be 
dangerous ground between us to keep us from having a relationship. When love is there, there's a safe path for me to be together with Sometimes we judge that the expressions of thankfulness and gratitude of the recipients of our effort, they're not sufficient. They're not sufficiently grateful. They have not really warranted me feeling like I need to be doing this again because they just ate my food and left or fill in the blank. You should see what they did to my bathroom or fill in the blank. And so we spilled it.
sharing a meal is simple, as simple as that. If we share meals together and we figure out ways to do that, and maybe it's just a cluster or a pocket, so it's not just wide open, not going crazy, but any efforts in that direction, Hospitality will not occur in 
Because the practice has been mostly forgotten and because it conflicts with a number excuse me, of contemporary values, we must intentionally nurture a commitment to hospitality. Nurture a commitment to hospitality. What are contemporary values that we hold that keep us from practicing hospitality? like privacy. Our homes are a place where we rest. We don't share our homes with people anymore. They used to build homes with these great big front porches on them. People in the neighborhood come by and welcome. We don't live that way anymore. You're not just going to accidentally fall into this. Privacy. Convenience. Maybe. We like to be Fast food and Netflix to relax in the evening, and we never think about hospitality for ages, and we're dying because of it. Another way that hospitality works is it, it, it confronts us in a way is we're very independent people. As someone said this morning, we're Oregon's, Oregonians for we're Oregon's, <laughs> we're Oregonians for Pete's sake. It's like when someone gives something to me, I have got to match that, and I have an obligation. It's this whole thing of pride, and we have not learned to receive hospitality as a free gift of love. No, I've got this. I'll take care of it myself. It's killing our hospitality. Each one of us should use whatever gift he has received to serve one another.
discussion on the last day of living. We know the time is short. We have our two-minute warning. I know it's hard to constantly live, constantly live in a state of preparation, but that is the dis discipline and self-control that we are invited into. <coughs> We're called to pray. Prayers that come from clear-minded and self-controlled disciples. You have a plan to get fulfilled out. You have a plan for hospitality. You have a plan about how to have the kind of love that covers multitudes. This command to love one another deeply, it's a pavement. That means whatever walls are there between you and I from having a relationship with each other, whoever you and I is, Jesus Christ breaks that down. He breaks that down. Commanding to practice hospitality. I think this is a make or break as a church, depending on the hospitality that we have. And then whatever our gifts are, you know one of the beautiful things about this body you think about the variety of gifts and talents represented in this? The, the vastness of the resources that we wield? The beauty in each other's lives that's present here and beautiful in uh, such stunning variety. What a beautiful thing. We use whatever we've got. Whatever you have, talents, resources, use those to make God look good. That's maybe a little more colloquial language. Make God look good. What, the, what we would say is, you glorify God. That somehow, the way you use your life and your resources and what you are about, somehow people will look at you and say,
Thank you. 
difficult issues with both of them. We pray, Father, that you will specifically help Maurice's sister and that Brittany will be able to stay with the twins for the duration that needs to happen for everybody to be healthy. We pray also, Father, for the spiritual well-being of everyone here. Lord God, I don't know what people need. I don't know how to answer all the calls and concerns that come up. And so I pray for your guidance, not just for me, but for each of us as we go about listening to each other, talking to each other, hearing the problems and difficulties. And Father, bless us with holy words. Bless us with encouragement. Bless us, Father, with strength beyond ourselves so that you can be glorified. We thank you so much for your love. Bless us now as we sing our last song. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a faster song. 